Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, it would probably be fair to describe CERN as Europe's flagship scientific project. And yet Ireland is one of a very small number of European countries that is not a member of CERN in any capacity. That doesn't mean that Irish science has absolutely no feet on the ground at the LHC, though. Amanda Donoghue is a UCD doctoral student working at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN right now. She joins me at this very second. Uh, Amanda, welcome to the programme. How are you? Doing well, how are you? Good. Tell me a little bit about your uh, interest in physics and and how you ended up at the LHC. Uh, Wow, okay. So my interest in physics started, I want to say, in high school. Um, I did go to school in the United States. Um, I ended up just having a phenomenal high school teacher, actually. Um, It was someone who sparked a really early um, joy with physics, so I followed that into my undergrad from there, my parents are Irish and I wanted to move abroad. So Ireland was a very nice choice for me. Um, and I looked at programs under Dr. Ronan McNulty, um, who is my current supervisor, and he provides world-class uh, physics contributions. So mm. it all kind of just fell into place. Um, mm. But overall, I had very good mentors growing up um, and then women in STEM, etc. cetera. Um, Just that first teacher really sparked a joy for me and I pursued it. So what is it like to work at CERN? Because everybody's heard of this gigantic institution partially submerged in in Switzerland and and other countries. But, But what is it like to be there? Can you describe it for us? Well, I would say it's... Top class, absolutely top class. So you're meeting with people from all over the world. It's an absolute melding of minds. Um, You'd get coffee and you'd overhear people discussing the beginnings of the universe. Um, So that aspect of it is just really brilliant. So anytime you have your stock on a project, um, you always can find help or have a great chat with this. It's also very social. Um, They have a lot of clubs. But overall, the science is just top class. Like, I'm actually one of the people who gets to work on a small team that deals with recording the data produced um, at LHCB. Um, And so I work on the data taking, data quality, safety, and scientific integrity of the LHCB experiment. So this is just something that's undescribable. You see it in the movies with, like, NASA launches or whatever, where you have this entire row of screens in front of you showing all of the different parts of this mammoth machine. Um, So it's just really interesting. And anytime there's a new discovery, there's just so much joy in the air. Like um, you see videos of the discovery of the Higgs boson, something that a lot of people are quite familiar with. There's in the museum there, the champagne uh, bottle that they popped that that morning and everything. So the, the atmosphere is really good and it's just very focused on science for the sake of science and it's a lot of common common minds in that regard i guess um you could say that nasa is the determined exploration of outer space whereas cern is the determined exploration of inner space can can you talk to us a little bit about your project at the lhc and maybe describe the, the the collider itself because i'm sure people may have seen pictures but what is it like to to see the machine um in real time Okay, so the machine itself, um, you always hear it described as um, Large Hadron Collider. It's a ring. However, it's actually a complex of rings that 
accelerate the particles gradually. So it starts off with a linear collider and then is brought into a smaller ring and then is slowly accelerated. So while this is actually going on and the LHC is running, you don't see any of that because it's actually 100 meters underground in a cavern. Um, so when you get to actually see the experiment is when it's being built, when it's being updated. So what you kind of see on the ground when it's running is all of the outputs all from all of the sub detectors and what the luminosity is doing, how many collisions um, we're detecting, which is just an absolutely it's an engineering marvel because you look at the size of these proton beams that they're colliding. Um, a good way to kind of get the scale with it, if you look at Spain on a two euro coin, that's the size of the beam. Um, you have to intersect two of those without being able to see it underground completely away from everything. And we're able to do that continuously. So the machine itself is absolute marvel. Um, so what I actually do is I'm looking at um, how often a subatomic particle called the rho meson is produced. This is referred to as a cross-section. So why I'm doing this is it will allow me to map out the internal structure of the proton. So I'm essentially x-raying um, the beam particles to see the individual quarks and gluons um, within, where what I actually do is I, I don't look at protons. I look at a special case where something that isn't often talked about is the LHC collides protons um, for most of the year. But for about a month every year, usually in December, it does collide heavy ions. So it collides proton lead, uh, lead lead. And then sometimes there was, I believe, a small running of xenon xenon. So I look at lead lead ions. So what, sorry, what, what is a lead lead ion? Uh, it's two lead ions colliding. Okay, so, so this is a charged particle of lead smashing into another charged particle of lead. Yes. Okay, and when we people talk about these proton beams, um, are they just smashing one proton into another, or is it millions of protons smashing into millions of protons? How how do you control it and measure the output of a single proton or ion smash? Very carefully. <laughs> So what they do is they get these protons, um, first of all, and they strip everything off of them. So you have individual bunches and it's actually, it's, it's done by bunch number. So you have a bunch of protons and those are <laughs> labeled and they can keep track of the bunch. Um, right. They can keep track of the bunch, not the individuals. How um, many are there in a bunch? I don't know, actually. I know there's usually about 2,000 something bunches that varies depending on um, how high of a luminosity we want to see. Um, and they fiddle around with that number a bit. Okay. Um, but yes, so they, they play around with the number of bunches. Um, I don't actually know how many are in a bunch. Um, so they can look at the bunch number and then see the colliding bunches. And so as these bunches collide with bunches going the opposite direction, you get less bunches. Um, is, that, is that a technical term, a bunch? A bunch, yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, bunch ID, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Sometimes it, it doesn't have to be fancy, it just has to be accurate. So you have these bunches colliding, and so this lowers your bunch count, and then after it surpasses um, a certain amount, I guess, um, kicked out of the machine, um, you have to dump the beam and then refill it and start over. So the beam actually, and the CERN uh, complex, it's running continuously, but you do not always have stable beams. 
So the beams kind of oscillates between you have stable beams, um, the amount of particles in the accelerator decreases, you remove the beam, you start over, it ramps back up in energy, you focus the beam, it tables it, you get stable beams. Okay, so, so d- d- just take me through um, what you're looking at when, because you, you're sitting there live as these smashes are, are happening. Yes. I mean, uh, the way I imagine it is it's a sort of like a car crash and uh, debris <laughs> debris hits the side of the tunnel. And, um, and it's it's nothing this excellent dramatic. okay okay so 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 um what what do you see on these screens and what is it and, and what are you trying to learn from it okay so there's a few different things you you see obviously with um all of the different screens um one of which uh that you do have is you have a live feed um down in the cavern um this is a safety this is part of a safety feature um so this is just making sure everything in the detector stays in place. You have a lot of magnets going on, etc. Um, so you do have a live feed of the cavern and the machine itself. Particles you can't exactly see; they're in they're inside of the detector. Um, but then the other screens that you see are readout plots that are live readouts from all of the sub detectors within LHCb. So, for example, you have something called a calorimeter which basically uses stopping power to get a energy readout. So you look at all of the calorimeter plots and we have a base of what they should be looking at or looking like. So you cross-reference them to make sure all of the readouts are in line with what we would expect. So basically this is data control. You're making sure everything's running correctly. Infrequently, but it does happen, you'll get things where a plot will be blank. And so obviously something's gone a while awry there. Um, usually this is something where communication errors um, occurred and you just have to restart the run and uh, turn it off, turn it back on for, mo- um, for monitoring. Okay, so yes. so you're you're um, there's lots of different sensors on this machine, um, mm-hmm. just monitoring the activity that happens when these uh, two uh, subatomic particles crash into each other, yes. and and there's a huge amount of data being produced, right? Absolutely but th- massive. Th- there's something clever going on that sort of screens all of the boring stuff out, right? Can you talk to me a little bit about, about that and, and where, where the interesting findings come from? Because it's just too much for you to, to, to take notice of in one, even just in one second. Oh, so you need that help, right? Yes. Yeah, so we have um, a series of something called triggers. So you have hardware triggers, which before a human being ever looks at this, this is a low-level trigger, it chucks out however many of the events. You it just disguise them as not interesting because it's what you expected. Not necessarily. Sometimes it, there's different versions of it uh, depending on what run type you have. Um, so some of them, um, it's a random trigger where it will randomly discard every so many events um, just for data management, data control. Okay. Um, other ones, you can add um, different requirements for energy thresholds, where it, um, where it lies in the detector, etc. Um, so those are the the low-level hardware triggers. Then you have something a little bit more sophisticated where you have a software trigger that you can run over a data set when you're doing analysis, for example, where you're looking for something specific. So for example, when I'm looking for 
the Romy's on, I know roughly what mass range it would be in, or um, I want a central exclusive production, which is a very niche type of um, particle generation. So I can filter or trigger for something like that. So for various reasons, there's all this information that's coming out, but uh, either by choice or just because you need randomly to take a lot of stuff out, you end up with a filtered version of of the reality of this smash. And in there, you're trying to find something interesting. What are you looking for? And and how do you know when you found it? So in particular, I'm looking for proof of gluon saturation. Um, so this is something where you're looking at how particles are held together. So you can do this by looking for specific particle types. And so you filter on that and you know you have it when there's five sigma with significance. So that means that you are you look at the data and you've run it a few times and you, you know that almost without a shadow of a doubt, this number is not just an error or a mistake of a reading or a bad sensing, that, that it, this data looks like it's really, really likely to, to be something. Yeah. How, how do you know what that, how do you know, what, if you're looking for something new, how do you know what to, to look for? Usually you look at theoretical models. Um, so the majority, you have an idea of what's there and you try to prove it. Um, so you look at a theoretical model, you try to find the bump or whatever that would be there, and CERN goes by five sigma, so it's five standard deviations above a background. So I read somewhere that keeping just one second of a full operation would produce a million gigabyte database. And so I totally understand why you need to use these triggers to sort of either intentionally or randomly cut out data. But what if you're cutting out something huge? What if dark matter is hidden somewhere in the calculations that you're discarding because either they don't look interesting or the computer is just randomly getting rid of them? That's a brilliant question. And it's one I actually wonder sometimes and it is discussed. Um, Look, what we have to do is the best we can. And the people who make these decisions are highly qualified. um, And you have to cut out data somewhere. Um, Usually this is why random triggers are, in my opinion, a bit better because you're not systematically removing a section of the data. It's a hot talking point, but I don't have an answer for you. In terms of your research, what is interesting about these Rho mesons and why are you particularly focused on them? So the Rho meson, um, there's quite a few applications uh, for finding the cross-section. So something I want to look at is possible proof of gluon saturation, which is essentially how are quarks bound by gluons. And depending on the energy scale, which we observe, um, the number of gluons increases. However, does this continue into infinity? That's probably unlikely. At some point, these this has to like saturate where it does not increase anymore. And when we're observing this, gluons dominate, and this is a new phase of matter. So the row is somewhere that we can test this and start looking at proof of saturation. And so essentially what you're doing is you're trying to understand the forces that that bind together the, the tiniest of subatomic particles yeah. uh, to, to try and, I suppose, finish the jigsaw puzzle of how forces and matter interact. Absolutely. So a proton is connected, a proton and, in my case, a romeson, by gluons, um, which is the strong force. And the strong force, force is a bit of a, a tricky force where it's counterintuitive, where the further away 
things get from the center, the stronger it pulls them back. So it's very interesting. Um, whereas usually, for example, electromagnetic force, the further away it gets, the weaker it is. Um, the further away you get from a magnet, it doesn't pull it back. It's the opposite with the strong force. And we want to see how everything's held together in the universe. And it's what makes up me, it's what makes up you, and makes up everything. Absolutely fascinating work and so lovely to speak with you. Amanda Donahue, a UCD PhD student at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Now, depending on your social media proclivities, you may or may not have noticed that your feed is awash with images from the James Webb Space Telescope at the moment. Certainly science Twitter is very excited about it. And so they should be, because it is amazing to see what we can observe on a very, very big scale and very, very far away scale, thanks to the increased resolution of this new space telescope. But in a similar vein, the third run of the Large Hadron Collider is allowing us to peer even further into the world of the very small. So what might we find when we look there? John Butterworth is Professor of Physics at University College London, working on the ATLAS experiment in CERD's Large Hadron Collider. He joins me now. Um, remind us, uh, John, what the Hadron Collider is, is, is built for. What, what is it trying to do? What it, so what it actually physically is, is a, a tunnel under the Swiss-French border um, full of magnets where we're colliding protons. We're colliding them together head on. And the reason we're doing it is that the energies involved give us um, the highest resolution um, that we've ever been able to see. So that we can see finer detail if we have higher energy. It's because there's a relationship um, in quantum mechanics between wavelength and energy. Um, but what it basically means is if you have a really high energy collider, you can probe deeper into the heart of matter than we've ever done before. So that's what we're doing. Um, and you may have heard not more, just over 10 years ago that we had a big song and dance about discovering the thing called the Higgs boson, which we can talk about if you like. Um, but what we're now doing is exploring the kind of energy scale above that. That, where that energy where the Higgs exists is a kind of key energy scale. And I think of it as kind of a ridge of mountains and we're we've gone over them when we've discovered the Higgs and we're now exploring the land that's revealed beyond that to us. And that's really what we're doing now. So the kind of big discovery, which was the Higgs, um, was 10 years ago now, but we're still exploring this new territory that the machine gives us access to. Very much, as you say, like the James Webb Telescope, when you crank up your resolution and the depth of field in a, in a space instrument, and an astronomical instrument, you see more, you see further, and we're doing that, but in the opposite direction. Yeah. When you say you see, what exactly are you looking for? Well... We're basically looking for, we're trying to identify, and this is kind of the overall goal of particle physics really, is what are the, what are the fundamental constituents of, of, matter, of nature, of matter, and what are the forces that bind them together so that they form the kind of complex universe we live in? Yeah, but what, what I mean is, what, what do you see a list of numbers? Do you see a oh, splatter right. yeah, pattern on the wall? I mean, uh, how do you go look for something in, you know, an enormous explosion of data? So what, what we do is we surround the point where the protons collide with very sensitive detectors, very high speed, but basically very, very high speed, high resolution digital cameras, if you like. And we, we track, we see what's produced when, they, when the, these things collide. And the, the action all happens right in the heart of the collision and we can't directly access that. But all the particles that we do measure were produced at that point. And by measuring them and their properties and so, for instance, when we were looking for the Higgs, one of the ways you could do it is you see a pair of really high energy photons come off. 
which are particles of light. And that's one of the ways a Higgs boson can fall apart. You, you create it and it falls apart very quickly to these two uh, photons. But if you measure those and you calculate their properties, you can get evidence that the Higgs was actually there at some point. And that's the kind of game we're doing, really. We measure the, the products of these collisions as precise as we can. And then we kind of project them backwards to work out what must have happened in the collision. When you bang these two things together, is it is it an individual proton in a in a kind of light tube, or what? Or is it a whole like is it zillions of protons smashing against zillions of protons? I'm really trying hard to figure out how you get something as small as a subatomic particle to smash into another subatomic particle after speeding it up, but. I mean, how fast do they, th- do they yeah, go maybe, again? It's really hard. Um, yeah, they're going practically the speed of light. I mean, always slightly less <laughs> because you can never, ba- never break that barrier. But they're, they're going practically the speed of light. So, yeah, it's really, you're absolutely right. It's really hard to make these really tiny things hit each other. <laughs> so what we have is we, they come in bunches, which have got millions of protons in them. Um, bunches? Bunches. But it's accelerator jargon, I guess, accelerator physicists, because... The whole thing, right, they're accelerated by radio frequency waves. So they're kind of surfing on an electromagnetic wave. And that's how we push, push them up and give them more energy. So that kind of forces them to have this kind of periodic structure. So they come in, in basically bunches. Yeah, and, and, and every 25 nanoseconds, so at 40 megahertz, that is, there's a bunch of these guys coming, potentially colliding. The bunches pass through each other. And they're squeezed down to a really tight volume with millions of protons. And even so, nearly all of them miss. What happens is something of order, 10 to 100 of them will collide. And then we have to unpick, really, we just like one to collide, okay? But but if we wait for just one, we'd be waiting forever. So we have to just pay the price that every now and then, there, that usually there'll be more than one. But our detectors are good enough resolution that basically we can pick out what was produced from a single proton collision. And we really do that. That's We, we really focus on one particular individual proton collision. Now, the rate of them is huge, so 40 megahertz or more. But in the end, what we want is all the particles that were produced in a single proton collision. Can we extrapolate those back to the the heart of that collision, and can, what can we learn from that? Do you imagine all protons are the same? I mean, what yeah. if you what what if you what if you smash two protons that aren't really that interesting, and the proton just before that one was a dark matter proton? Yeah, no, they, they well, as far as we know, <laughs> to be fair, right? There's some real. That's actually not a silly question. So, protons as particles, they're kind of they are quantum mechanically identical, but that within that, there's a, that hides a kind of lot of complexity because inside of that, there, there are little fluctuations. You know, I don't know if you know about quantum mechanics. There's all, even the vacuum, even empty space, has got all these little fluctuations going on. That is going on inside the proton as well. So one of the ways you can think about what we're doing is sometimes a little, a, a little bit of the proton will fluctuate into a Higgs and then we'll be able to pick that out maybe. And you're absolutely right. We hope it would fluctuate into a dark matter particle as well and we'll be able to pick that out. That, obviously, that's more speculative. But it's, it's not a silly way of thinking about it, that this proton is a kind of quantum me- mess of all these potentially existing particles existing for tiny little amounts of time. And if we actually, if the collision happens and disturbs them in one of the middle of one of these fluctuations, then we can start observing the nature of the of the, the quantum field theory, which is essentially what, what describes uh, matter as far as we know in what we call the standard model of particle physics. So it's not a bad way of thinking about it. They're, they are they're statistically all the same, but they're all doing slightly different things on different timescales sometimes. So um, there's been a little bit of chatter about a so-called new force. Mm-hmm. What is that about? I thought we had all the forces. 
Yeah, we kind of do. <laughs> so, well, the the so the standard. Well, I just mentioned the standard model, okay, and that's our theoretical framework for thinking about the fundamental forces, and that has. It doesn't actually have all the forces in it. It has three of them. It has the, the weak force, the weak and strong nuclear force, and electromagnetism, which is the one people are probably most familiar with. It doesn't include gravity, actually, which is a bit of a problem, to be honest, because gravity clearly exists, and it's not included in our best theory. Um, but that's, that is the standard model, as far as you know. So in the standard model, there are no more forces. Um, so what people are chattering about is that there are some very precise measurements that actually show they they seem to show and it's not definitive yet but it's 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 um what should we say significant enough disagreement that people are starting to chatter about it basically which is what we've right. been doing uh, that they can't be explained by the standard model they can't be explained by the forces in the standard model or gravity actually so the the idea is that okay maybe maybe there's some new quantum field in there which would be a, a new force or a new particle um and it, it at the moment it's kind of vague. All we know is that we have some deviations that don't seem to fit the pattern that we expect. And then, of course, the theorists come in and start postulating ideas to make them work. And, and is, that, is that what we're going to see then in run three? So this is the third yeah. ramp up of the LHC in its history, right? And, and a new phase of detection with higher resolution. Um, yeah. are, we, are we looking specifically for this new force? Yes. So the short answer is yes. <laughs> We're looking for other stuff too, but yes, we will. And the, the experiment, which is LHCB, I think the main anomalies you're talking about here, there, well, there are a few actually. The, the, the ones that there are some from an experiment called LHCB, which is one of the experiments on the LHC. They will be repeating their measurements with more precision. The other experiments, like the one I work on, which is ATLAS and, and CMS is the other one, We'll be looking to, to see if we can see any more direct evidence for this force. So the, the measurements we see at the moment are kind of deviations in very rare processes. They're not a direct production of a new particle or a new force-carrying particle. So there is a chance, Not it depends on the theory as how high the chance is, but there is a chance that you would be able to produce some of those directly in the other experiments if you have enough data, if you collect enough data. How can you tell when you look at you know the differences in energy that that are coming out of of a of, of one of these smashes. How can you tell if something's evidence of a new particle versus a new force? Are, are they are they different things? Do, do they have different signatures, or or are they two sides of the same coin? At, they're at they're essentially two sides of the same coin. I mean, uh, in, even in the standard model, they they have some different properties. I mean, we we talk about the photon being a force carrying particle for electromagnetism. And, you know, it has a different spin. It's, it's what we call a boson rather than a fermion. So they have some detailed different properties. But in the end, um, they're, they're all, it's all part of the quantum field theory. So they're, in a sense, they're two sides of the same coin. There are even, there's even a theory called supersymmetry that makes that explicit and says that they're basically the same thing. Um, so really what we do is, you know, where we stand is like we have sort of straws in the wind, things that don't fit the standard model. And then it's a kind of inverse problem of trying to, Say, okay, well, these things don't fit the theory you have. So what kind of better theories can you think of that would describe them better? And do those involve new particles or new forces or both? And, and different theories at the moment will come up with different answers because there's not a huge amount of evidence at the moment. But we'd hope that as we get more data, we can characterize what's going on better and then narrow down the possibilities. And then the, the favorite candidate at the moment, I guess, is a, is a new particle, actually, a new kind of particle, which is some combination of a lepton and a quark. But... But there are other models that, where it's a new force. And, and that's also, as I say, there's kind of two sides of the same coin. Right. Um, there have been 
exotic, so-called exotic particles um, discovered uh, more recently. Yeah. What are the significance of those? I, I mean, when, when, when you come across something like a, a very exotic and very rare particle, what does it do to help us understand what makes up an atom, how matter came to be and how it's, it's formed? It's, that's an interesting one. So the, the particles you're you're referring to, I think, are, are exotic hadrons. So the 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 hadron collider is colliding protons or heavy or nuclei. So neutrons and protons and other things. There are examples of a class of particles called hadrons, which are made of quarks. And what are the chances of finding hadrons in the hadron collider? Oh yeah, absolutely. They're all <laughs> over the place. Sorry, <laughs> um, but these are brand new ones. So in the the, the, there's a subtlety here in that these new particles are not actually beyond the standard model. What they are is a standard model behaving in a way that we've never seen it be, behave before, but it's not forbidden by the standard model. So uh, in the, the, up until recently, relatively recently, all the hadrons we had had either three quarks in it, in them, or one quark and one antiquark. And this is, they're bound together by the strong force, and this was how nature was behaving. And it's quite complicated to solve the equations and predict that kind of emergent behavior. It's part of building up the complexity of the world, you know, from the fundamental rules. How do the fundamental rules play out to give us the kind of phenomena we see around us, up to mm. and including us and stars and planets and everything. And these guys are a new emergent phenomena from the standard model. They're not beyond the standard model. Do you see what I mean? So right, what we've okay. been talking about a new force. So they don't, they're not surprising. They're, no, they're, they're, they're just... interesting and they're maybe mildly surprising, but they're not as surprising as the new force we were just discussing about would be. Right. No. So they, and they, they, they'll be teaching us, they're teaching us something about how the strong nuclear interaction works and how it binds quarks together to form matter. So it's, it's, it's good science, but it's not the kind of earth-shaking stuff it would be if we actually did find the fifth force that was fundamentally right. beyond the standard model. What about dark matter and dark energy is it possible that by increasing the resolution looking in the right places and being a bit lucky the lhc or fermilab experiment in america might reveal something about this elusive material this elusive energy that um that seems to to be missing in our understanding of how the the universe sticks together yeah um it it's possible. Um, whether you think it's likely or not is kind of a judgment call because it depends very much on what you think these things really are. And so you can always say, you know, we're, we're, we're looking in, in over new territory, as you said at the beginning, it's unexplored territory of physics. And dark matter and dark energy are both new phenomena in physics that we don't actually include in the standard model. Okay, they're, they're, So when we're looking at a completely new um, area of physics and we have things that are not been, that we know are kind of out there somewhere, but we don't know where, then there's always a hope and a chance that they will be in the new area that the Large Hadron Collider gave us access to. But honestly, there's no guarantees in this case. Yeah. With, the, with the Higgs, there was a guarantee, right? We knew if it existed, we That's where it would it. be, yeah. And therefore, if we didn't find it, it didn't exist. Whereas it's not really the same with dark matter, for instance. Finally, the, the JWST telescope is giving us higher resolution and showing us the beginnings of our universe. And considering that as crazy as this sentence sounds, it appears to be true that we went from no matter in the universe to all matter in the universe in one millionth of a second. Yeah. Is it possible that JWST imagery may give us some observational information that might help us with figuring out what's going on in the subatomic level? 
Yes, there's again a short answer to that, and and it's uh, it's the large scale structure of the universe is probably the biggest connect connection. Whether you know, if dark energy has a, we know that dark energy is essentially an expression of the fact that the universe is expanding and accelerating in its expansion. We don't know what the microscopic mechanism for that is, but we seem to see from astronomy that it's happening. I think that the JWST and some of the studies it does may, may give us more information about that. Um, and also the, the way the galaxies are distributed and how they're formed gives us that, that matter played a pivotal role in that, we think. So yeah. anything you learn about that was, is going to give you some clues, you would hope. Um, so yeah, we, we talked, you know, cosmologists in particular and astrophysicists definitely and particle physicists have, have definitely got things to talk about. Well, John Butterworth from University College London and the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. <laughs>